1: Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm very excited to welcome to the show today Dr. Stephen Frank, who is professor of anesthesiology and critical care medicine here at Johns Hopkins. He's also the medical director of the blood management program for the Johns Hopkins Health System, and he's the chief of adult anesthesia the adult anesthesia division here he does a ton of work with a lot of really interesting stuff but specifically today i'm welcoming steve to the show to talk about liver transplant anesthesia which is one of his real passions and something he's been doing for a long time steve welcome to the show thank you jed i'm glad to be here So before we jump in, I do want to just put one more plug out there for all you listeners. If you haven't already, please go to acrac.com slash survey. That's A-C-C-R-A-C dot com slash survey, where you can take a completely anonymous survey and give me some information about who you are, not your name, but who you are, meaning where you live and why you listen to the podcast and what you get out of this and any other podcast. I would really appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. So let's jump right in and talk about liver transplant anesthesia. So, Steve, why don't we just start at the very basics. Why do people need liver transplants in the first place? What are some common reasons that people come to have their liver transplanted?
2: Sure, um, sure thing, Jed. Uh, I like to divide the uh, patients into three categories. Uh, there's viral hepatitis. Uh, there's alcoholic cirrhosis. And then there's what I call the other uh, reasons for uh, needing transplant. Uh, so, viral hepatitis is mainly hepatitis C. Um, alcohol cirrhosis is is just what it sounds like. And then the other causes we see Nash, uh, especially in the morbidly obese patients. We see uh, sclerosing cholangitis, and we see primary biliary cirrhosis. Um, It seems like those are the main causes, and I could go into the details um, of of the different uh, ramifications, but maybe that'll come down the road here.
1: Sure. So they all take us to a common pathway, or at least can take us to a common pathway, which is the need for liver transplantation. One question about the alcoholic uh, hepatitis or the uh, end-stage liver disease from alcohol abuse. Is there uh, kind of rules or guidelines around ongoing drinking in terms of who can get transplanted? So they have to go through a formal psychiatric evaluation. Uh,
2: They have to prove that they're abstinent. Uh, I think there's no hard, fast rule how long they need to be abstinent because if they're really, really sick and they're trying to die, then they might bend the rules uh, because they're going to need the transplant right away.
1: Right. And then in terms of priority, and I don't think we should spend a lot of time on this, but like any transplant program, uh, for the most part, the sicker you are, the more desperately you need the liver, the higher you are on the list, and the MELD score, I believe, is what is used. Is that right? Right. Uh,
2: That's exactly right. The sickest patients get highest priority in general. Uh, There is one slight exception, that's the hepatitis C patients Mm -hmm. can develop hepatocellular cancer which we call HCC, uh, and that bumps them up on the priority list because uh, the liver transplant for them is actually a treatment or a cure potentially for hepatocellular cancer. So they get extra meld points uh, just for
1: having the cancer. All right, great. And so however you qualify, you're ready to get your transplant. And most places, certainly I think at big academic centers these days, the people doing the anesthesia, are people who either have a lot of experience and are actually almost considered liver anesthesiologists or more and more younger uh, people, people who've gone through when I did, are actually doing non-ACGME fellowships but still fellowships in liver transplantation or a fellowship that includes a lot of experience with liver. So why is it that for this specific procedure you need specific training? What is it about a liver transplant that makes it so challenging? Oh, good question. Uh, Well, when I did
2: the fellowship, we called it a vascular thoracic transplant. So what I consider that to be was all the big cases outside of cardiac. Mm -hmm. Um, So I consider myself to be a big case anesthesiologist. Mm -hmm. That means you put in uh, invasive lines, uh, large bore central lines, uh, which, as you know, can be uh, tricky and even high risk. Uh, associated with morbidity if you, mm-hmm. if you don't do them correctly, um, and then how to interpret um, uh, like numbers that come from a pulmonary artery catheter, or a swan gans catheter, which now in the TEE era is is becoming less and less common. So, uh, I consider us to be a big case anesthesiologists. Uh, uh, familiar with big blood loss, which we haven't talked about yet, and massive transfusion. Uh, And that's a whole art in and of itself
1: to avoid the coagulopathy and all the complications of of transfusion. Absolutely. You know, I think that when I was a resident, again, we thought of these as really CA3 advanced-level cases, Uh, Certainly, we had a small group as as we do here at Hopkins and at UCSF where I trained. We had a small group of attendings who did these liver cases. Uh, It was a liver group, in fact. And so I think that uh, we have a combination of two things from what you're saying: both very sick patients going in, because again, the sicker you are, the more likely you are to have the operation. And so people with liver disease are often not even considered eligible for elective surgery, right? So these are people who to have elective surgery would be so high risk that that we don't even do it. And yet they're going in now for surgery, of course, to have their liver transplanted. So they're very sick. And then on top of that, as you said, these are really big operations with a ton of blood loss and a lot of risk for adverse events.
2: Exactly. And and they have abnormal cardiovascular physiology. Uh, For example, it's it's classic in end-stage liver disease to have a really high cardiac output and a really low systemic vascular resistance. So uh, that's why treating the hemodynamic uh, parameters with pressors and inotropes and fluids needs to be done just right uh, because these patients don't uh, tolerate... Uh, the, the abnormal uh, vascular and, and cardiovascular status that they're in. So uh, it's a careful balance between uh, transfusion, uh, cardiac output, systemic vascular resistance, titrating uh, vasoconstrictors, and inotropes. And uh, the, the other challenge is that often these patients come to you and uric with hepatorenal syndrome. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you want to talk about that now or if that's coming down the road.
1: No, let's talk about that a bit now because that's okay. one of the reasons these patients are so sick, right? So they often, as you say, have renal insufficiency uh, renal or even renal failure. So uh, hepatorenal syndrome, you want to say a few words about what that is? And-
2: so um, so renal syndrome is, um, is when the kidneys shut down uh, and they can, they can, patients can go anuric Uh, It's reversible with a transplant, by the way. Uh, So the kidneys are are fine. They just don't function. And uh, we don't know exactly what causes it, uh, but uh, the treatment is a transplant. And the tricky part is that there's very little room for error with intravascular volume. So we need to give blood for blood. And if you can't give too much of anything, too much plasma or platelets or cryoprecipitate, because there, there's not enough room in the vascular space, and you can't diurese
1: them uh, down to a normal uh, volume. So it becomes very tricky. Do you ever have anyone who goes to the operating room on continuous dialysis for a liver transplant?
2: Yes, we do. And those are the sickest of patients. Um, but even then, uh, the ability to remove any significant amount of volume on, on dialysis uh, takes hours, not minutes. Right. So, so you can't really take off two liters of extra volume uh, in, in a short period of time. So even dialysis is not the answer.
1: Now, some patients go for combined liver-kidney transplant, Am I right that these would not be the patients, at least with early hepatorenal syndrome, since, as you said, it should be reversible? These are patients who are judged to be had to have irreversible renal failure. Is that right? <clears throat>
3: uh,
2: you're right. And uh, sometimes uh, if, if the kidneys have been down long enough, they don't think that they'll, um, they'll reverse, so they'll come back. So they'll, they'll put in a kidney from the same donor. Uh, also, the... Um, the immunosuppressant drugs that the patients take post-op are renal toxins. So sometimes they put a kidney in uh, for that reason because uh, they anticipate that any renal failure could get worse from the uh, immunosuppressant drugs.
1: Right. All right. So now let's talk about getting ready for the transplant itself. So you've got a patient coming to you. They get the call. There's a, there's a liver for them, and you're getting ready. And in reality, I'm sure it's your resident doing most of this. But you know, I'm sure you're helping out. Uh, What are you doing to prepare in terms of your operating room? What are you getting ready, and and how are you preparing?
2: Um, So we set up a a triple transducer. Almost all of our patients get a PA catheter. Um, uh, We started using more TEEs recently but I personally prefer the PA catheter because you get hard numbers for cardiac output and systemic vascular resistance. Uh, So three transducers. Uh, We usually set up for a rapid sequence because they have big ascites and a lot of intra-abdominal pressure. Uh, We usually use a subglottic suction tube uh, because uh, although we're extubating about 50% of our liver transplants now in the OR, uh, they still have a good chance of remaining intubated, and we think that might reduce post-op pneumonia. Yep. Um, we, we have the pressors that we have are usually uh, phenylephrine, norepinephrine, uh, and then we also get an insulin drip uh, because they get a very high dose of methylprednisolone, usually a gram, and they need insulin to treat hyperglycemia. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, we have a Belmont rapid infuser, uh, and we order blood. We're still stuck on 15 units of red cells and 15 units of plasma, although the blood use is dropping over the last three years uh, pretty dramatically uh, just because they're getting technically better. And we we talked about going to 10 reds and 10 plasmas, uh, but we just haven't done that yet. How about platelets? Uh, platelets are always available at our blood bank. So we, we, just, uh, we just call when we need them, and they're always available. And same with cryo? Cryo, okay. Uh, so that's a whole other section that we could talk about uh, is coagulation. Uh, so cryo takes about um, half an hour to thaw and um we usually use uh we use a triad to determine which products they need uh first is clinical picture are they bleeding second is their laboratory test like pt ptt inr and platelet count and then the third is thromboelastography so clinical picture lab test and the teg uh and we we use the triad so uh it's really, uh, we, we, we usually base it on two out of three. Okay. okay. If, if two out of the three are abnormal, then we give plasma or
1: platelets or cryo as indicated by the lab results and sure. the TEG. So if your fibrin engine is low and your MA is low, you're going to give the fibrinogen engine uh, along with platelets probably. Okay, so let me back up one second because you mentioned a triple transducer, and just so everyone out yeah. there is aware, we're talking about here uh, a transducer that's going to measure your arterial line pressure, your central venous pressure, and your pulmonary pressures, right? Right. Okay, so three transducers for each of those. Um, great. And then you mentioned RSI, subglottic suctioning, the pressors you're going to have ready. You mentioned phenylephrine and norepinephrine. Um, do you have epinephrine ready in kind of push dose, or what do you? What is your? What role does epinephrine play?
2: Right. Um, well, the typical liver, end-stage liver patient has a cardiac output of about 10 liters a minute, mm-hmm. so about twice normal, Yep. Uh, and a systemic vascular resistance of about 400, which is about half normal. Right. So I call them fixed and dilated. Yeah. Okay? Um, no pun intended. Uh, but so they, they usually, if they need epinephrine, it's not an infusion. It's just a very brief uh, bolus, like you say, at the time of reperfusion mm-hmm. uh, when they can see dramatic hypotension. Uh, so sometimes we give very small doses of epinephrine during the reperfusion stage. You know, okay.
1: We can talk about reperfusion uh, in a minute, if Absolutely. you will. Perfect. Good. All right. so. We talked about preparing the OR. We, you mentioned the lines. So the, let's, let's get specific about the lines. So it sounds like most, if not all, patients are going to have a SWAN. Uh, obviously, to have a SWAN, you need a cortis. In addition to a cortis and a SWAN, are you putting other central
2: lines in? Uh, so after we rapid sequence, we do a radial art line. Uh, and then we usually do three eight and a half French introducers. Um, and they can go in either the left neck, the right neck or either arm, mm-hmm. uh, because we have these, these eight and a half French RIC lines, right. Rapid infusion catheters. Right. Uh, that are shorter than the central, uh, introducers. So we, we go with three, eight and a half French. I often put two in the right IJ mm-hmm. side by side, one for the Swan and one for the Belmont. hmm uh, and then the third introducer could be in the left neck or the antecubital, let's say, either one. And that can also be used for, for the Belmont because it'll take two lines coming off of the Belmont.
1: Great. And just to remind everyone, a, the things that will increase your ability to uh, give flow through a catheter are short length of the catheter and wide diameter. And so if you have to choose between a short cortis in the arm or a RIC or a longer cortis in the neck, you're actually going to get better resuscitation from that short cortis, right? Yeah, that's true with all intravascular catheters, yes. Great. Right. All right. So that we talked about the A-line, the central lines, um, and you're putting that A-line in after induction unless, are there certain patients that you put it in awake?
2: Uh, almost all the patients get get their R-line after induction. If, if they drop their pressure, you know they need uh, alpha agonist. Right. Because they all have this high output and a low resistance. Right. So we just
1: go straight to the alpha agonists. Okay. And you mentioned having phenylephrine and norepinephrine ready. Do you start with phenylephrine and then give norepinephrine when you reach a certain level, or are you using them both simultaneously?
2: Yeah. Uh, a lot of people just go straight to norepinephrine nowadays. Uh, I, I think they're similar drugs, only norepi is much stronger. And and because they're so fixed and dilated, as I say, they're relatively unresponsive to normal doses of alpha agonists. So you can give three hundred mics of phenylephrine, for example, and and they hardly respond.
1: So if a patient is is behaving like that, you might go straight to norepinephrine. Okay. So we've got a SWAN in most patients, and then you said there's been more and more use of TEE. Is this like a cardiac case where the TEE probe is going to be in the whole time, or do you call for it if and when something's going wrong and you need it?
2: Uh, actually, it's provider preference uh, and provider credentialing,
3: mm-hmm.
2: because we have to be credentialed to uh, place and to use a, a TEE probe. So uh about half of our liver transplant providers are credentialed and use it routinely uh, i 'm in the other half okay. I still like the Swangans catheter sure. uh, if If someone uh, is there to put the te probe in i 've used both mm-hmm. but I, I like the hard numbers that you get with the swan gans uh, for cardiac output in SBR
1: right and I use that to titrate pressors uh, a little uh, more readily right. Now, when people are using the TEE, are they using it to get a kind of moment-by-moment feel of cardiac output, or are they looking for changes in cardiac function that may come from either cardiac ischemia or uh, something like that?
2: I I think the biggest uh, benefit of TEE is is to look at uh, end diastolic uh, volume Mm -hmm. or filling pressures for the left ventricle, Um, because... uh, Everybody lives at a different place, and their Starling curve. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people need a, a left ventricular filling pressure of, or a wedge pressure of 10, and some people need one of 20. And uh, if you get an image of the left ventricle and you can see it collapsing on on systole, mm-hmm. then you you can say, well, this
1: patient needs more volume. Right. All right. So let's now move to the procedure itself. So in my experience. This is usually divided into three stages. Is that right? Do you divide, in your mind, the, the transplant itself into three stages? Uh, yeah. You could say the hepatectomy stage,
2: uh, which takes about two hours, and is usually where they're going to lose the blood during the hepatectomy stage. Mm-hmm. Then there's the anhepatic stage, uh, which lasts about um, half an hour. Uh, because they they want to get the liver reperfused quickly uh, rather than have warm ischemia, uh, and then there's the post reperfusion uh, stage, um, and I could go through
1: each one of those if you'd like. That'd be great. Why don't we do that? So yeah. let's start at the beginning. What do you think about what's happening during the yeah. hepatectomy phase?
2: So um, communication with the surgeons is important. Uh, Watching the surgery is critical, okay? We even have a camera that we focus right on the field and put it on a screen. And we have a clear drape so you can see the surgery and Mm -hmm. not have to climb up on two stools to look in. Right. But you need to know when they're bleeding, when they're clamping, when they're having trouble. They don't always tell you, okay, we're having trouble, we have a hole in the cava. Right. You have to be watching to figure these out, okay? Right, right. Uh, so the hepatectomy stage, like I said, can be where they bleed. And, um, and you can tell. They, they have to preserve all the structures. They can't just take the liver out. They have to preserve the portal vein and the paddock artery and the common bile duct so they can do the reanastomosis. Right. So it's a very careful dissection that they need to do. Then they need to peel the liver off of the cava because, remember, the cava runs right behind the liver. And so they use a, a side-biting clamp on the cava to do what we call the piggyback technique. Mm-hmm. So when I was a resident, they used to clamp the cava entirely. Right. Okay. Which causes a lot of hemodynamic uh, problems, right, with venous return.
1: You essentially lose all of your venous
2: return. Yeah. You, from the lower half of the right. body, yeah, you lose venous return, and cardiac output drops, blood pressure drops. Now they side bite the cava. Uh, and by the way, if the cava is small in diameter, they can take a really big, generous side bite, and it's almost like a total clamp. Right. So you need to watch and, and see what happens. Uh, but when they do clamp, the more they clamp, the more volume you have to give to fill the heart. Right. Um,
1: so that's, that's the challenge during the, during the um, hepatectomy stage. Okay. So there... Mostly, it sounds like these days doing piggybacks. Uh, Even when I was a resident, it was about half and half. So it's uh, Mm -hmm. there. It sounds like they've moved more that way. So they're doing piggybacks, which, depending, as you say, on the size of the cava, may or may not be closer to a full clamp. So you're going to have some reduction in in venous return. And so that's a stage where you're both looking at a lot of bleeding and then doing a lot of resuscitating. Is that right?
2: Yes. um, That's why. We monitor cardiac output, and and I like to monitor the pulmonary artery diastolic trend, okay? I think that's the best measure of intravascular volume that we have. Mm -hmm. And I I can tell you that if the PAD, pulmonary artery diastolic pressure, is a single-digit number, they're going to be hypotensive, and they're going to have a low cardiac output. So it usually has to be above 10, right? Right that's that's what i've learned over
1: 25 years of transplant great so that's a number to look at keeping it above 10 now you mentioned earlier giving blood for blood so you're looking at blood loss and replacing blood with blood if despite placing replacing blood with blood the well let me back up are you replacing blood with blood and matching one-to-one prbcs and ffp or or no so good question so um In a classic
2: massive transfusion like a trauma patient where you don't have labs, uh, we often go Mm one-to-one-to-one, red cells to plasma to platelets. Right. But this is a little different because we send labs every hour Mm -hmm. and we know what the hemoglobin and the coags and the TEG look like. So we don't automatically go one-to-one-to-one and because... Often now, we're not doing massive transfusions on these livers. Okay? Right. We'll give two or three units of red cells and be done with it, right. and the case is over. So because we have labs every hour, because we have the TEG, and because we're doing less and less massive transfusions, we really uh, customize the transfusion to
1: what they need. Right. Great. So you're giving the products that they need based on your information. Are you giving any crystalloid, and if so, which crystalloid are you using?
2: Right. Um, so for years we've used Plasmalite. Uh, we want to avoid the calcium that's in uh, Ringer's lactate because we might be mixing it with um, citrated blood
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, from the blood bank. Uh, so we use Plasmalite, and, and we do try to minimize crystalloid. It seems to be a trend now across surgery in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, we think it might slow down their recovery, having to diurese off the extra liters of crystalloid that we give them might cause more bowel edema, maybe more ileus. Right. That's what the surgeons are telling us, at least. Absolutely. So we, we try to give less crystalloid, more blood for blood, and we're giving... This is very controversial, as you know, uh, colloid versus crystalloid, but we are giving more
1: albumin Mm -hmm. uh, lately uh, because we think it stays intravascular. Okay. Now, on that topic, let me ask you, if the surgeons open the abdomen and there are four liters of ascites and they suck it all out, does that make you, as you would potentially for a paracentesis, want to give albumin for that? Or do you just watch your hemodynamics and decide what they need?
2: Right. Uh, so we see this quite often, as you know, leaders of ascites. Uh, and, and within 15 or 20 minutes, they'll start to uh, drop their filling pressures and their cardiac outputs mm-hmm. because they, they start to third-space fluid out of the vascular space. So we, we do use albumin for that because they haven't lost any blood, so they right. probably don't need red cells or plasma at that point, and we, we give easily, we give a, a liter of 5% albumin uh, very often in a case like that.
1: Okay. So you're using 5%, not 25% for that. Right. The 250 ml bottles. Yeah. Okay. So we give four of those. Great. All right. Uh, up to four of those. Up uh, to four. And you're deciding based on quantity of ascites or based on blood pressure?
2: Mm-hmm. Um. So pulmonary artery diastolic is my favorite monitor for, for basically LVEDP. Right. It's an estimate of left ventricular and diastolic pressure. Right. Almost as good as the wedge pressure.
1: Right. And, and the theory there, just for everybody out there, is if the mitral valve is open then the left atrium should reflect the pressure in the left ventricle diastole. And if that is true, then that pressure should be reflected back into the pulmonary artery where your SWAN is sitting. And so that pulmonary artery diastolic pressure should reflect, uh, and there are exceptions, of course, but in general should reflect the left ventricular and diastolic pressure.
2: Yeah, so you can measure cardiac output. If they're hypotensive with a lower output and a lower... Uh,
1: pulmonary artery diastolic pressure, then you need volume. Right. Okay. So you're uh, often going to see when they aspirate a lot of ascites, dropping in pressure, dropping in that uh, LVEDP, dropping in, therefore, your PAD that you're watching. And when you see that fall, you're going to give albumin until it comes back up. All right. So let's move on to the anhepatic phase. So you said it's about 30 minutes. What are you looking for there? What are you worried about? What are you anticipating? Right. Um,
2: so, believe it or not, even a sick liver with cirrhosis still performs some functions, okay? Like making clotting factors,
3: mm-hmm.
2: okay? Uh, so, when they take the liver out, everything gets worse. Yep. They're not going to clear lactate, they're not going to make any clotting factors. Factor 7 has the shortest half life, uh, maybe two hours. Mm-hmm. So, the longer the liver's out, uh, the more uh, metabolites accumulate, like lactate, and, and things get worse. The, clo- the coagulation will get worse, and you can also see fibrinolysis during the antipatic phase. And that's something we see on the Teg uh, that can cause bleeding. And uh, that means you form a clot, but then your clot quickly breaks down.
1: That's called hyperfibrinolysis. Mm-hmm. And so we look for that during the handiopathic phase as well. Now, if you see that, are you giving Amicar or Tranexamic acid? So, good question. Uh, uh, those are anti fibrinolytics, mm-hmm. yes, uh,
2: lysine analogs. Uh, so, that is the treatment for hyperfibrinolysis. However, uh, in a liver transplant, they're just as worried about clotting as they are for bleeding. Mm-hmm. Because if they clot off their uh, Portal vein, hepatic artery, or their hepatic vein or vena cava. If any of those clots, the liver is dead. Right. So we rather have their blood a little thin. Okay. Okay. And therefore, because the hyperfibrinolysis during the hepatic phase is is almost always a temporary thing that reverses on its own,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, we we rarely need to give amicar or tranexamic acid.
1: Okay. Great. I meant to ask you before about the uh, hep- hepatexomy phase, but uh, same for this. What are you doing in terms of your pressers? So we talked about replacing blood, trying to keep that uh, PAD pressure above 10. If despite that, you still have hypotension, are you then starting your norepinephrine?
2: Oh, good question. So because they're what I call fixed and dilated mm-hmm. with this high output and low resistance, right? Okay, they actually need that high output. Okay. So if they drop their cardiac output from 10 liters per minute to 8 liters per minute, they'll get hypotensive. Right. Because they need the high output because of the low SVR. Right. So, so often the treatment for hypotension is, is both volume and vasoconstrictors.
1: So you're doing both at the same time.
2: We, we often need to keep the filling pressures up to keep the output up. Right. And then we need to tighten up the SVR, because when we come to reperfusion in a minute here, uh, they're going to get acidotic and vasodilated, and and the acidosis uh, suppresses cardiac contractility. Right. So we'll talk about
1: that next. Great. So you're using your norepinephrine. Would you say... Yeah, I mean, roughly, if you had to say, what percentage of, of liver transplant patients are are actively on a norepinephrine drip during the during the uh, hep, the hepatectomy phase and the Uh
2: I would say about seventy five percent. Okay, so almost everyone are on life. norepinephrine.
1: Yeah. Okay. And what kind of dosing? Usually a
2: lowish dose, like point uh, 0one
1: Okay. per kilo per minute. All right. So, norepinephrine uh, and fluid, keeping that. Uh, keeping the heart full, whether you're looking at it with the TEE or whether you're measuring with your SWAN. You mentioned when we just talked about the anhepatic phase that it's really coagulopathy that you're worried about there because of the fact that the liver is not making the factors anymore. Other Anything else, anything that sticks out that you're worried about during the anhepatic phase?
2: So if you look at, at PT, INR, and PTT, they get a lot worse during the anhepatic phase really fast. Yeah. So that that tells me that even a really sick liver is still making clotting
1: factors. Right. How about acidosis? Does acidosis get worse during during that phase?
2: Well, because uh, the side-biting CAVA clamp still uh, uh, decreases flow, there's some venous stasis uh, distal to that clamp. Mm -hmm. And so, and and, by the way, the, the portal vein is completely clamped, so the entire gut, is, is hypoperfused because mm-hmm. there's no outflow right. if the portal vein is clamped, except collaterals, Right. like esophageal varices. So that's also a source of acidosis because the, the gut is ischemic while the portal veins clamp. So, so lactate will go up, the pH will go down. And then when they reperfuse, we could talk about that now.
1: Absolutely. Let's talk about reperfusion. Okay. So we've done about two hours of a hepatectomy, 30 minutes of an hepatic yeah. phase, now we get to reperfusion.
2: So um, the liver has been stored cold in a, in a cooler, uh, but it still generates hydrogen ions because it, it has no oxygen supply. Uh, so it develops acidosis uh, in the cooler. And the longer it's, it's out of the donor, <laughs> the, the more acidosis it can develop. Uh, the, also, uh, the other issue is hyperkalemia because... The preservative solution that they use um, for the liver is very, very high in potassium. And uh, so we try to flush that out before reperfusion. Mm -hmm. They run a a liter of cold saline in through the portal vein before reperfusion to try to wash out the preservative. Okay, But that's not a perfect uh, process either. So you're going to see acidosis and hyperkalemia. When they reperfuse, and you got to be ready for that with two drugs, primarily, which would be uh, calcium chloride and sodium bicarbonate, uh, which are the acute, immediate treatments for uh, hyperkalemia. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we often preempt; we will give half an amp of bicarb, like 25 milliequivalents, and half an amp of calcium chloride, like 500 milligrams, uh, before the reperfusion. And then I'll give the second, the other half of those amps
1: after the reperfusion. Right. Okay. So preparing for acidosis, preparing for hyperkalemia, for reperfusion. And that's both because there's uh, potassium from the storage solution still in the liver. The liver's also been developing acidosis. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, all of that lower extremity, uh, the lower part of the body, the gut that wasn't being Uh, adequately drained that's now developed acidosis itself that's all going to get flushed back through once the pathway is open
2: right and so the acidosis on reperfusion we almost always see hypotension because acidosis itself is a vasodilator
3: Mm -hmm. and
2: also a myocardial suppressant
3: Mm -hmm.
2: so uh you get profound hypotension uh sometimes on reperfusion happens about two minutes after they reperfuse because all that blood has to go through the liver. Right. And and also, uh, that's when we we also give uh, small doses of epinephrine to try to uh, increase inotropic uh, activity
1: in the left ventricle. Right. Okay. Like 10, 20, 30 mics of epi. Okay. Now, sometimes do you see... Cardiac arrest. Is there enough potassium that could hit the heart that would actually stop it?
2: So we've seen that twice in the last year. Okay. Um, a hyperkalemic arrest on uh, reperfusion. Um, the good news is, uh, see that when they open the clamps, the liver goes right into the drains into the cava, right, which drains right into the. Um, Right atrium. Right. So it's like a shot of potassium into your heart. Okay. Right. I call it the death penalty. Right. Sounds like a bad idea. It's like the death penalty. Right. Potassium into the heart. Right. Okay. But once it goes around the circulation once or twice, okay, it gets diluted. Right. So it's like a big bolus of K into your heart that then gets diluted out. So when we've seen these arrests, it usually takes maybe 30 seconds of CPR with chest compressions. Uh,
1: and then everything comes back, right? With, especially with calcium, bicarb, and epi. Okay. So as long as you're moving that blood through with your CPR, it's going to get diluted out and the heart shakes That's come my back. theory of why they always come back. Good. <laughs> Great. All right. Good to know they come back. All right. So during the reperfusion phase, calcium uh, certainly... Uh, is going to be important. And then uh, bicarb uh, as well, though listeners know my, my uh, loathing of sodium bicarb. Maybe this is one time where it, it may be uh, permissible. Um, I, Steve often talk about uh, the, uh, the lack of evidence for using sodium bicarb in lactic acidosis in the ICU. So that's my, my personal pet peeve. But uh, obviously, this is a different situation. You're using it both to try to shift Potassium uh, in the acute hyperkalemic uh, situation, and then uh, for profound acidosis.
2: So uh, we also do some other things. We, we want to get the potassium down before reperfusion.
1: Right. So
2: we'll hyperventilate. Mm-hmm. We'll often give Lasix or mannitol to take potassium out. Yep. Uh, we'll even do insulin and glucose if we can't get the potassium down before reperfusion. Um and we'll even wash the banked blood. If the potassium is creeping up before mm-hmm. reperfusion, I mean you don't want it above five before reperfusion because it's only going to go higher. Right. So we'll often wash the banked blood through the cell saver because then you remove all the supernatant or the plasma that's left. Right. And all you get is red cells and saline, and you can lower
1: the potassium down in the banked blood close to zero. Okay, great. All right, so that's the reperfusion phase. Now we've successfully made it through. They've closed the patient. Impressively, you're saying about 50% of the time you're going to extubate in the OR, uh, the other half not. But either way, you're going to the ICU, I presume, regardless of with or without a breathing tube.
2: Right, we always go to the ICU. Uh, The post-reperfusion stage is really uh, trying to dry up the patient. Mm-hmm. Uh, surgically and medically okay so we follow the tag closely uh thromboelastography uh, because the, the antipathic phase will will worsen your coagulopathy and and the lag time is significant so you might not see the worst tag until after reperfusion Okay, and then that's when you you look at the fibrinogen level, and you might have to give cryoprecipitate. We like to keep the fibrinogen level above 150 now. If the patient's bleeding, we mm-hmm. used to use 100, but now we use 150 according to the European guidelines. Um, and then of course uh, plasma uh, to treat the usually the uh, the R time on the TEG mm-hmm. or the INR. Uh, But we we want the INR to be about uh, 1.5 to 1.7. Okay. We don't want to correct it to normal, normal, because we're we're more worried about clotting than we are bleeding.
1: Right. With the graft uh, viability. Right, which would... Right, so I was going to ask you about factor seven. I would imagine there's a lot of reluctance to use factor seven for that very reason. The last thing you want is a clot in the vessels leading to this new liver.
2: Yeah, most of the programs uh, that used to use factor 7 are not using it any longer, including mm-hmm. ourselves. Uh, because what can happen? Okay? You can have a subset of liver transplant patients that are actually hypercoagulable. okay? And you'll see this on the tag. And, and what it is, is uh, patients that are protein C or protein S deficient, mm-hmm. which, as you know, are the endogenous anticoagulants that are produced in the liver. Right. And, and so if you get one of these patients that's protein C or S deficient, uh, you can see hypercoagulation on the tag. And twice in the last year, I've actually uh, started heparin on those patients during, during liver
1: transplant because the surgeons, like I said, are more afraid of clot than they are of bleeding. Okay. That's great. So now we're in the ICU. Are there uh, anything specific, things you think of in a post-op liver transplant patient that you're specifically looking for in the ICU?
2: Uh, Well, of course, number one, two, and three have to be bleeding. Yep. Uh, So they watch the drain outputs really close. Um, And you, you work more in the ICU than I do. But if they're hypotensive and they're putting out their drains, they're coming back. Right. Uh, I can't tell you how many cc's per hour, um, but uh, it's, it's a judgment call. Right. And because, you know, you, you can only give so much blood in the ICU before you, you worry about going back. Because if, if they're forming clot and hematoma in their abdomen, that can cause compression on the on the vascular grafts. Right. So they don't like that either.
1: Absolutely. And so I, I would agree with you. I think rather than looking at a specific number, the question would be if the Teg looks okay and the, and the lab values look okay but the bleeding is still ongoing, it's going to make you think it's more surgical than medical and, and more reason to go back. So certainly we might go back to the operating room for bleeding. Uh, you hear a lot this idea of uh, wondering if the patient is clearing acid yet or clearing lactate. So is there a difference between clearing lactate and clearing acid?
2: I'm not sure. Uh, I think we watch both, and uh, <clears throat> I mean, if if they're renal insufficiency or renal shutdown from a battle renal syndrome, they're not going to clear acid as well. If the liver is doing its job and it's reperfused and it's viable, then they might clear acid faster, right? right. So I guess if you're not clearing acid or lactate, that could indicate. Uh,
1: hepatic or renal dysfunction, right? That's my take. Right, and so uh, I guess I think of lactate. Obviously, you're looking at the lactate number. Click uh, in terms of overall acid, you're looking at the base deficit. Um, is there one that you think you you care more about, or you can look at either one equally—the base deficit versus the lactate level?
2: Um, I think uh, if you're if you're ventilating normally with a PCO two that's where you need it to be. Then, if it's a metabolic acidosis, then we need to look at the causes of
1: such.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Maybe even get academic about anion gap and things like that. Right. So, if you have, in other words, a large base deficit and it's not from lactate, right? So, if yeah. you're clearing your lactate but your base deficit is going up, yeah. then that's a problem, that there's something else going on.
2: Yeah, I think so. Uh, Again, I I don't work as much in the ICU, so... uh, um, I I agree, you don't just give bicarb
1: to treat the acidosis. Right, right. You have to treat the... That's like treating the symptom, not the problem. Absolutely. So I think in general we're looking for uh, the two should, the overwhelming cause uh, post-op of a worsening acidosis is going to be a lactic acidosis. So usually your base deficit and your lactate are going to track together. Um, And as your new liver kicks in, you should start clearing your lactate. And therefore, as you clear that lactate, you're going to clear the base deficit uh, because that's usually the source of it. You may have some other things going on. If you guys, uh, as you mentioned, use plasmalite, If instead of plasma light, for some reason, you're using normal saline, then you can definitely get a hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis, which may play a role there. Um, Certainly renal failure, if you have longstanding renal failure uh, that's continuing, can play a role as well. So you can have other reasons for acidosis besides the lactate. But I'd say overwhelmingly, in my experience, and it sounds like you would agree, post-op from a liver transplant, you're going to see your lactate and base deficit track together.
2: I I know... um that there's two, two things that make the surgeons think the liver is working well is when they clear lactate and when their coags normalize. Right. Uh, so a, a functioning liver from a, a good, healthy donor will start working right away, and you can come by the next day, and you'll see the, the INR and coags are normal. Right. So the, a, a good liver
1: that's perfused well will, will function immediately. Absolutely. The other thing that uh, we get all the time immediately post-op is going to be a liver duplex ultrasound to make sure that the flow is good to the new liver and that there isn't clot developing, as you said, which can be a big problem for the new uh, the new organ. All right. And we kind of talked about when a transplant would need to go back to the OR kind of emergently. The major reason, as you said, 1, 2, and 3 is going to be bleeding. Uh, other uh, things could be... a, a acute rejection uh, or inability of the liver to clear acid uh, if it's in, if, it, if it's not working and then they'll the find it would be obviously if they are developing a clot that's preventing blood flow to the to the organ
2: I'd say we we if we take patients back to the OR, it, it's more often for um, a poor blood flow in the hepatic artery or the portal vein than it is for bleeding mm-hmm So there can be a kink in the hepatic artery right, uh, or a thrombosis in the portal vein, and and we take them back for those reasons, and they can find that on the ultrasound duplex. Right. But it's unusual
1: now to to come back for bleeding. Okay, great. All right. Anything I didn't ask about that you think is important? Uh, I think they're
2: my favorite cases to do. They're really fun. They take about five hours now.
1: And um, they have everything that I'm looking for in a case. (laughs) That's great. And I know our residents love doing them with you. Um, Well, thanks so much, Steve, for coming on the show. I think this was really great and useful, and uh, we'll have to have you back again. Maybe we'll talk about your other passion, which is blood uh, management. Thank you, Jed. I'm privileged to be here. Thank you. Thanks. All right. That was fantastic. I hope you all got as much out of that as I did from talking to Dr. Frank. If you have any comments on what you heard today, please go to the website, acrac.com, and you can find this episode. You can leave comments on what you heard. Do you do liver transplants at your center? How do you do them? Do you agree with the way that Steve took us through it, or do you do things a little differently? We can all learn from the comments that you leave on the site. You can also join the mailing list at acrac.com in the upper right-hand corner. You'll get notifications of new episodes and anything else interesting that's going around. If you haven't already, please take a minute and go to iTunes, find the show. You can search for my name, Jed Wolpaw, or for ACRAC, and leave a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show. And one last time, I will ask if you haven't, please go to acrac.com slash survey and fill out the completely anonymous survey about the show and about your podcast listening habits. I would really appreciate it. All right, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Steve Frank, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.